0: You can go ahead and turn over to Matthew chapter 5. We're in Matthew chapter 5. We're looking at the Beatitudes. And As we read this morning in Philippians chapter 2, it talks about the humility of our Lord and how He is to be a, an example. Um, he is an example for us and, and how we need to follow that example that was laid out so clearly in His life. This morning, as we look at chapter 5 and picking up there in verse 3, um, you know, we've been talking about this idea that Jesus has come to bring happiness, to, for people to experience happiness or blessedness, and that's what's spoken of here in the Beatitudes all through chapter 5. And um, uh, our Lord didn't tell people how to live um, necessarily step by step, but about the kinds of attitudes uh, that would bring about the proper behavior. Um, and he showed that a a person's inner self, a person's inner life, is really uh, the key to true happiness. And that's what he's talking about here in the Beatitudes. And someone asked me this past week, that, don't you think these Beatitudes are just a little high for the normal Christian, and it's it's impossible, it sets a standard that's just impossible, and maybe that by chance um, this passage was meant to be for the millennium, not for us here today. And you have to stop and you have to say, well, wait a minute. Um, and they point to Matthew 5, if you jump over to verse 48, where he says, there, therefore you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. And they pointed that out. And they said, see, that's, that's speaking of the millennium. So I think all this teaching goes to the millennium. Well, uh, and they, their, 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 their point is that, you know, this sets a standard that obviously we can't apply to the church today. It can only be applied to life during the... The millennial kingdom. But you know what? Jesus never said once in the Sermon on the Mount that it was intended to be applied toward the millennium. He didn't preach to people living in the millennium. He preached to people right there, the 12 disciples and and the others gathered around. And also, if you just think of it practically, the reason we wouldn't believe that is if you look at verses 10 and 11 in Matthew, it says, Blessed are those who are what? Persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are you when a man shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for My name's sake. Well, beloved, I have news for you. During the millennium... That behavior would not happen. It's not going to be tolerated. Revelation 19:15, that our Lord says, our Lord will rule with a, a rod of iron. Now, there's a minute somebody steps out of line, boink, you know, you're out of there. Um, and, and even over in, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, it would, be, it would be meaningless if if it was in the millennium. It says, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them who despitefully use you and persecute you. See, every principle in the Sermon on the Mount is found elsewhere in the New Testament. It's not just here. And for that reason, as well as the reasons given above, Christ's message must be for us now, because life like that is not going to happen in the millennium. It must mean today. And He expects us as His people to apply this high standard to our living right now. It's not a future thing. Only that kind of obedience will result in what Jesus is saying here is in true happiness. When we get uh, our hands around what he's saying here and say, okay, I'm going to put this into practice. And it really has a way of changing one's uh, life. This Sermon on the Mount. If you apply the principles that we'll be learning in the coming weeks to your life, you'll be a different person. I guarantee you. Uh, Unfortunately, many Christians today in our society have lost any kind of um, distinctiveness from the world. We're just all kind of globbed together, and there's nothing distinctive about being a Christian today, because so many Christians have just basically mirrored what the world has done. There's not that many differences in in churches today, because so many churches have mirrored what has worked in corporate life in America and said, "Oh, let's let's do this in the church," because you know we want to be uh, viewed as successful. And so, you know, many Christians today allowed their Their standards concerning music and sex and divorce and marriage and all sorts of things, alcoholic beverages, food and dance and entertainment and sports and all other things, to be molded by the world's standard, not the other way around. See, God wants us to live as people distinct from the world and from its systems. That's what He says. That's why He calls us a peculiar people, a people who've called out. That's why He calls us sojourners, people who are just passing through. We're not here to stay. And it grieves God to see the corruption among His people. I shared this. I think it was. I don't think it was last Sunday. I think it was in our. No, it couldn't have been last Sunday because we went to this church on Sunday night. It was in our small group. But I'm going to share it again this morning. And Beek and I, after the picnic, we went home, and I just thought, you know, let's find a church that has a Sunday night service, and we'll go just for the fun of it. And so, uh, about the only church that has a Sunday night service, I think, is is uh, um, Highland Church in San Bruno. I don't know if uh, PCC still has one or not. So if, if they do, overlook that. But that probably would have been closer. But anyway, we got in our cars, and the service on the net, it, on the on their website, it said, you know, praise night, you know. And I'm thinking, oh, good, just some good music, just go and relax. And and, uh, um, and we got there. It started at five, and we got there about 4:30, and kind of. Got into the, the building about quarter to five there and uh, you know, they have a pretty big church and lots of parking and all this stuff and well there's nobody there. And I thought this is kinda odd, you know. And I saw Pastor Sheely and there folding some bulletins in the in the sanctuary, and they have a pretty good sized sanctuary, probably holds a thousand people or, or upwards of five hundred or thousand people, and, and I'm thinking, I wonder where, if they have a the service or not. And my wife's saying, Well maybe they don't have one tonight. I said, no, it said on the internet they're having a praise time. So, you know, I looked in there, all I saw was a piano and a bass guy, a bass player, and I thought, okay, well, that, that could be it. I don't know. And so eventually we made our way into the sanctuary there, and, and um, uh, finally my wife got up and she had, she had to go to the restroom or something, so she went and asked the pastor "Where's the restroom, and so that must have been the cue to, for him to realize that we weren't from his church, because it is a big church. And so he came down, and we were talking a little bit, and he said, you know, when I started this church, I wanted to have a Sunday night service. I just I just wanted to have one. And, and I've stuck by my guns. But we, we don't have a lot of people come out. You know, usually it uh, depends on what's happening. But sometimes it could be as little as 25 or 50 or possibly as many as 400. It just depends what we have. goes tonight we're having a, a, a guest speaker, one of the other pastors was speaking here, kind of give him an opportunity to teach and stuff on Sunday nights. And so we're not expecting a big crowd or whatever. And so that's okay. We're just here to you know enjoy the worship. And we did. We had a, a wonderful time. And driving home, I thought you know, we were, we were talking about the, how we don't have an evening service here on Sunday night. And, and Bika was reminding me at First Baptist in Fremont when we had an evening service and how it was just the norm. I mean, you know, you went to church Sunday morning and you went to church Sunday evening. That's just what you did. It wasn't even a, you know, oh, I'm doing extra. It was just part of the, the life of the church. And, and I remember driving home thinking, you know, boy, thank God we don't have an evening service. Boy, how hard it would have been to get out and you know and then come back on a, you know, Sunday evening, six o'clock and you know, and you gotta do the music, you do all this stuff, and boy, it's just an extra thing, you know. I don't know about you, but I kinda like my nap and Sunday afternoon and you watch a sports show or whatever, you just kinda get comfortable at home and then kinda later on in the evening doze off to sleep, you know. You don't have to you just do it Sunday morning. That's kinda the peninsula way and you know? all and I you know I started feeling convicted in a way. But don't I'm not having any plans to have an evening service. So don't don't get freaked out here. You're probably oh, what's he gonna do now? This crazy Busy pastor? No. Okay. But the thing that it showed me is that, you know what, in my life at one time, the standard in my life was, you know what, non-optional in my Christian life was Sunday morning, usually Sunday school at nine o'clock, service at ten o'clock, and then, you know, you'd usually hang around for fellowship time afterwards, and then, you know, you'd usually go out for dinner or lunch with the people in the church anyway, so then, you know, you'd be back to church at six or seven, whenever the evening service was, and you'd probably get home about ten o'clock at night. After you went out for pie after evening service. Because you always got to go out for pie after evening service. That's just what we did. And so, you know, it was this whole thing. And then, you know, on top of that, we did the Wednesday night thing. We did Thursday night visitation. We did Saturday morning visitation, bus visitation. And we had a, a Wednesday night, you know, Bible study and everything. And I'm thinking, boy, you know, when you begin to lower the standard for certain things, you grow accustomed to it. And then all of a sudden, when someone says, hey, let's go to church on a Sunday night, it's like, oh, I don't do church Sunday night. You know, it's this big, major obstacle in our life because we've lowered the standard in our own Christian walk. And, you know, not to be legalistic about those things, but we have to be on guard about that because we live in a society that pushes us away from the church. It doesn't push us toward the church. It pushes us away. Think about how many times you haven't come to church and then think of the reason why you didn't come to church. You know, it's just, it's just obvious that, well, you know what? If it was, if, if Jesus was at church, I probably would have been there. <laughs> you know, the other thing could have been on hold or whatever. But since Jesus isn't there this morning, uh, you know, in your mind, you're thinking this and I'm not going to go. And it's okay. Well, it's not okay. It's not okay with the Lord. You know, you're missed when you're not here. God misses you when you're not here. Plus you're, you're hindering your own spiritual growth. And so when people look at something like the Sermon on the Mount and they're going, whoa, this is just too, there's no way I could ever apply this to my life because, you know, that must be for the millennium. No, that's not true. On the very basic level of our life, God wants us to conform to His Word and to His way of doing things, not to the world's. And that even includes our daily schedule, our weekly schedule, whatever it may be. Where does God fit in? You know, he used to be, the church used to be the hub of society. Now it's lucky if it's one of the spokes, you know, or maybe it's the little cap that covers the, the, uh, the, the, the air plug on the wheel, you know, and sometimes that even falls off. You know, it's just kind of a weird because it's, it's, it used to be the center of our lives. And now it's just kind of all blown up, and we're lucky if, if we make it to church once or twice a week at best, and then we think somehow we're doing God a favor by showing up. Uh, We've got to change that mindset. And see, this this Sermon on the Mount will change the way we think. When When a manufacturer manufactures a car and you buy that new car, what do you get in the glove compartment? You get a manual. And that manual hopefully tells you the things that you need to know about your car. Sometimes it doesn't, but usually it does. When to change the oil, how to figure out how to turn on the lights, what happens when these bells and whistles start going off. You know, I mean, cars are so difficult today. I mean, where's the day when you used to go out in your garage and change your oil? I mean, now you've got to have a degree in computer science just to reset the thing on the dash and, you know, reset the oil light and all this craziness. You know, life's complicated today. But God manufactured us. He made us. He created us. And, and very few people turn to Him to find out how they can know happiness. They're trying to search for it everywhere else. And that's what Jesus is telling us in this sermon. And you start here in verse 3, and he says they're poor in spirit. And there's kind of a progression here that Jesus is is working on. I said last week that this isn't just happenstance that, oh, you know, the humble or poor in spirit is the first thing he lists. No, Jesus planned it that way. Because if you're poor in spirit, then that leads to verse 4 where it says, if you have the right attitude basically about your sin, poor in spirit, that leads to mourning. Then you have you're grieving over your sin. And when someone recognizes their sinful position and they mourn over it, it develops a sense of meekness in their life in verse 5. And that meekness then in turn leads and it manifests itself in a hunger for thirst for righteousness. And that hunger manifests itself in mercy and purity in heart and a peaceable spirit in verse 9. And a person who displays those attitudes in this world, you better guarantee that you'll be reviled, that you'll be persecuted, that you'll be falsely accused on occasion. That's because that kind of lifestyle irritates a worldly lifestyle. It just does. But in the end, we'll be able to say in verse 12, Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is their reward where? In heaven. And when you live in accordance, you're going to find out with these principles that Jesus has laid down for us in the the Beatitudes here that we'll fulfill verses 13 and 14, we will be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. That's our goal while we're here. So in verse 3, he starts off, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Stop and ask yourself this question. Why must a Christian be poor in spirit? What does it mean to be poor in spirit? What's he getting at here? When you stop and you think about it, if you're humble, it really leads to a right knowledge of yourself. And here Christ speaks of a different kind of living, a, a new standard. Being poor in spirit really is a fundamental characteristic of any Christian. It's the very basic fundamental characteristic of any Christian. And we can stand on the authority of God's words and say here today that no one will enter Christ's kingdom on the basis of pride. You won't get there. The doorway someone said this the doorway into the kingdom is very low low, and you must crawl through it. You're not going to be going into heaven, hey, here I am, God, look at me you know, I'm puffing your chest out. Not going to happen that way. The sooner we realize that we are incapable of attaining the standard of Christ and what He calls us to, that perfection that He speaks of, the closer we are in finding the One who can help us attain the standard. See, the problem is we think we can attain it ourselves. We think that somehow we can clean up our act or we can do the right things before a holy God and somehow God's going to look down and go, Oh, good one today, Steve. (laughs) Yeah, you did good. It calls for humility, that kind of mindset. Jesus was saying basically, you know what? You can't be filled until you are empty. He was saying, you can't be worthwhile until you realize that you're worthless apart from my son, Jesus Christ. See, and that's the opposite that we have today in many churches. The emphasis in the church isn't on being empty and being worthless apart from Christ. The emphasis on is on basically, you know, how to how to You know, fill yourself with joy and all these other things. And, and, you know, you go to any Christian bookstore and you start reading the titles. I don't think I've ever seen a book on how to empty yourself. There's books on humility, but too much of the contemporary Christian kind of social genre that's out there feeds on our pride. And you know what? They're making money every day on us as a result of our pride. Because we want to feel good about ourselves. So when somebody publishes a book that tells you how you can feel good about yourself, you want to buy it. But a person without poverty of spirit, with someone who is not poor in spirit, really fails to understand the grace of God. And they can't be a Christian since salvation is by grace through faith. I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but sometimes when you're sharing your faith with somebody who's not a Christian and you're explaining the gospel and, and you get to a point where they understand it and they're saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you say, well, you know, do you want to become a Christian? It always grieves my heart when they look at me and they, the answer is this, I just don't think I'm good enough. Because see, they don't get it. They're still in the performance thing. You know, they're still thinking that somehow they have to be good enough to gain access to a holy God. And that's not what it's about. It's not based on how good we are. It's based on how gracious and how good Christ was. Humility also leads to a right knowledge about Christ. See, Christ doesn't become precious to us until we're humble. You know, you probably don't think very much of the, the guys that work for AAA that go around with their tow trucks and their gas, you know, the little gas jug they carry. You know, you probably drive by them on the freeway all the time. You see them and you think, oh, glad I don't have that job, you know. But when you're on the freeway and you run out of gas, <laughs> who do you call? AAA, you know. I need some gas. I'm stuck on 280. I need some help. Boy, that guy comes out, you know, you don't go, look at the job you got, buddy. You, know, you say, oh man, I'm glad to see you. You know, maybe even give us a tip or something. Because he got you back on the road. You all of a sudden you have a, a newfound respect for this tow truck driver. Because he met a need. See, that's the way it is with Christ. You can't be filled until you're empty. You can't be worthwhile until you understand that you're worthless apart from Christ. When we preoccupied with ourselves and our own wants and our own needs, we can't see the matchless worth of what Christ has done for us. And we also can't comprehend how lost we are. See, until we see our own poverty, until we see our own just sinful heart before God, and there's no way out, we can't see His riches that He gives us. No man will enter the kingdom without understanding first of all his own sinfulness and realizing he needs to repent. He needs to he needs to change his attitude about his sin. Proverbs 16:5 says this, everyone who is proud in heart and this these are not weak words, these are very strong words. Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. An abomination to the Lord. That's very strong language. And what that means is God doesn't like it. (laughs) He doesn't like it one bit. He's not going to put up with it. The only way a right relationship to Christ is established is when we confess our own unrighteousness and our own inability to meet God's standard. And so what Jesus is doing here, He's really laying out a standard for us that's unattainable to us in our own flesh. Paul thought that he was blameless. Philippians 3 6, until he became a Christian. Philippians 3 3, then he realized that he had no basis for any confidence in the flesh. See, a person enters God's kingdom with a sense of helplessness and desperation. That's how you have to enter. You think of the church of Laodicea. No, it was rich. Jesus described it. He said this Really, you're wretched, miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. And the sad thing is they didn't even see it. See, there are many people in the world today who think that they have no spiritual needs. Oh, I'm fine. You're okay, I'm okay, that's cool. You, know, you do your Christian thing, that's all right. You know? Yet in reality, they're desperate. They're in desperate need of Christ. They just don't know it. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? What did Jesus mean when he said, blessed are the poor in spirit? Does it refer to physical poverty? Should we go out and sell everything and just, you know, live like a monk up on a hill somewhere? Some, some say that Christ was referring to material poverty in Matthew 5.3. That's what they say. And they point to Luke 6.20, which says, blessed are ye poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. That creates kind of a problem if it's just speaking of material poverty. And I think those two passages Luke's 6.20 is basically his account of the Sermon on the Mount. They need to be studied together. Matthew 5.3 defines the kind of poverty that Luke was referring to. I mean, stop and think of it just practically this way. If... if if we must be without money to receive blessing, if it's talking about material poverty here, blessed are the poor, just poor, physically poor, you have no money. If that's true, if that's what it's referring to, then the worst thing a Christian could do is to give money to those in need. Because you're really hindering their spirituality. If that's what Jesus was saying. But that runs runs counter to every teaching in the New Testament, and it would require the closing of orphanages and hospitals and missions, which reach out to the needy. Well, we don't want to do that anymore because it says, "Blessed are the poor." If it's talking about physical poverty, then we got a problem. Our Lord wasn't speaking, obviously, about material poverty in five three Matthew five three. You stop and you think of the riches of of poverty you know riches often trap kind of trip people up don't they you know we've all heard stories of somebody who's who's you know won the lottery or done something just incredible and they got all this money and you know within five years they're bankrupt and their you know, houses are being repossessed all this horrible stuff's happening to them see often a, a poor person's circumstances give him a running start in in the spiritual realm you have a better chance if you're poor physically if you're poor materialistically of heeding the message of Christ and the message of the Gospel than you are if you're rich. Because the self-sufficient of the rich, the self-sufficiency, their self-sufficiency really causes them to be complacent. They don't need any help. They don't need a search for God. They can do anything they want. You know, this last week, I was, the iPhone came out. If you're a techie here this morning, you know what the iPhone is. a new gadget that Apple invented. and I was took my brother down to uh, Stanford for his PET scan on uh, Friday. And uh, I'd appreciate your prayers for my brother, Bob, too. He's just, he's just not looking good, and I don't know what's going on, but um, he's ready to go be with the Lord. So if the Lord wants to take him, that's okay, too. But uh, um, he's just in a lot of pain his back, and his, his uh, I think the cancer in his lung is causing him some pain. But you can pray for him. He's a believer. But I went down to, after I dropped them off there at the hospital, and they said it'd be like two hours, so I went over to the Stanford Mall and went to the uh, Apple store there, and you know, um, looking, I'm thinking, there's going to be this big line, you know, well, there's just four people within these cones out in front of the store, and I thought, that's all that's standing in line for the iPhone? I mean, all over the country, there's lines, you know, a hundred people long. So I went in, and I was talking to the, the guy about some other things, and they were going to close early that day, and so um, I was waiting for a call for my brother to go pick him up to the house. And I walked out of the, the, uh, the store and took a right and kind of walked down that way to, going to grab something at McDonald's. And I looked to the left, and there they were, the massive people. You know, They went all the way down the thing and all the way around. They just had four of them out here because they didn't want to disrupt all the traffic in the mall, I guess. But there they were, and I looked, and I thought, wow, all these people waiting in line for this iPhone. And I, and I thought, you know, I mean, at least wait till the second, third one comes out so they got all the, you know, the, the things, bugs worked out of it. But then I was reading through the paper and I saw the co-founder of Apple, Wozniak, waited in line since 4 a.m. Friday morning till 6 p.m. He's, he, he works at Apple. He's getting a free one next month. But he was there in line. And I thought, man. You know, and these are guys that have probably millions, if not billions, of dollars and they're waiting in line at an Apple store for an iPhone? They cost them four or five hundred dollars? I mean, I didn't at least pay somebody to go stand in line for me. I went stand in line. And I I look back on it, obviously there was some marketing, you know, thing going on there because he had t shirts and all this other stuff. And then Steve Jobs showed up at another Apple store somewhere. So, but you know what? These men obviously are self-sufficient within themselves. They don't, you know, Steve Jobs doesn't even need to work at Apple. He doesn't take a salary. See, and that's why the Bible says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Because, see, you have to be broken. You have to be spiritually bankrupt before you can come to Christ. Rich people don't get that. Hey, what do I need that for? I can do whatever I want. I can fly wherever I want. I can help people whenever I want. See, a rich person is likely to trust in his riches while a poor Person or a poor man or woman, they don't own anything, so there's nothing for them to put their trust in. King David said this in Psalm thirty-seven twenty-five: "I have been young and now I'm old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread." See, Paul had times when he was hungry and he was thirsty, but he never resorted to begging. The Lord and His disciples were were accused of of all sorts of things: being lazy, ignorant. Turning the world upside down, all sorts of things. They were materially poor, but they were never accused of being beggars because they trusted in the Lord to meet their needs. And He did. They enjoyed the riches of God in the midst of their physical poverty. So it doesn't, it cannot, in verse 3, refer to physical poverty, to materialistic poverty. So it only leaves one other option it must refer to spiritual poverty. It's not talking about how much money you have or you don't have, it's talking about what's inside, what's in your heart. That word there, translated poor, in Matthew 5 3, it speaks of someone who is cowering in kind of a dark alley near the near the way where people walk by and they're just cowering back because they don't want anybody to see them, but they're putting their hand out for a morsel of bread. They're embarrassed. In the classical Greek the word referred to someone who was reduced to begging in a dark corner. For alms, the beggar would cower and he covered his face up because he was too embarrassed, too ashamed to show his face. I mean, that's a little different than the people we have, you know, around here, especially in San Francisco. I mean, you know, they got signs and lights and all sorts of things, you know. You see, you see all sorts of things. I'm not going to lie; I just want a beer, you know. You see all sorts of things out there. It's like, oh my goodness. With well, this word, poor is the same word that's used in Luke 16.20 for the Lazarus, that described the Lazarus, the beggar. And it's, it's it's just an incredible picture of someone who has no spiritual, no resources within themselves at all. And Christ said those who are the beggars in spirit, those who are poor in spirit, are the happy ones. He wasn't talking about physical poverty, he's talking about spiritual poverty. Spiritually, man is empty. They're poor. They're helpless. And the, better, the quicker we understand that, the better off we are. We have no resources that will help us get into heaven. None. We're spiritually incapable, the Bible says. And we, we need to be totally dependent on God's grace. So what's Jesus saying? He's saying happy are those who are destitute, who have towering spirits. They're the ones that really know their need. That's in sharp contrast, by the way, to what the world will tell you, to what worldly religions will tell you. The world says, happy are the rich, happy are the famous, happy are the self-sufficient, the proud. And this emphasis that Jesus is making here is really on the inner man. You know, by using the phrase, happy are the poor in spirit, Jesus is teaching us that a man who is begging on the inside is the one who is happy. Because you realize there's nothing within you. Isaiah 66, 2, God said this, To this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of contrite spirit and trembles at my word. Psalm 34, 18, The Lord is near those who are of broken heart, and save such to be as a contrite spirit. Psalm 51.17, David said this, "...the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, thou wilt not despise." Isaiah 57.15 says this, "...thus saith the High and Lofty One," speaking of God, obviously, "...who inhabits eternity, whose name is Holy, I will dwell in the high and holy place with Him also who is what of a contrite and humble spirit." to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. God identifies with people who are spiritual beggars. Not those who think they're self-sufficient spiritually. Being poor in spirit is not being lazy either or indifferent. A person who's poor in spirit, basically, you have no sense of self-sufficiency and you recognize that you're you're spiritually bankrupt. You realize that there's, there's no money in the bank spiritually for you. You can buy a prayer if, if your life depended on it. Because there's nothing that you have that God wants. Christ described this attitude of the one who is poor in spirit in Luke 18. Turn over there with me just quickly. Luke 18. He describes what it what gives us a picture Someone who's poor in spirit. Luke 18, look at verse 10. It's the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. You've probably read this. Um, he spoke this parable, on some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. That's the first mistake, they were trusting in themselves. Look at verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Bragging, prideful spirit. Verse 13, and the tax collector standing afar off, because he probably thought ashamed, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven sign of humility but beat his breast sign of mourning saying god be merciful to me a sinner he paints those two pictures for us you have one guy that's religious and tells all he does and you know waltzes right into the the congregation there and hey, here's who who look at me and the other guy is standing afar off afraid to come in because he's just ashamed of his own sin verse 14 jesus says i tell you this man went down to his house justified the tax collector, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will what? Be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. That's God's principle. Humility is what will exalt us. That's the opposite of what the world says. Total opposite. God receives those who recognize they are spiritually destitute. And those who cry out for God... To God for mercy. They're the only ones who will ever come to know God. There's no other way. There's no back door. There's no side door. You know, you have to come through the spiritual bankruptcy of your own soul. And the New Testament confirms that. And in James 4.10 it says, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and He will what? He will lift you up. He will exalt you that kind of poverty represents deep submission to god and in a lot of churches today that's very unpopular because there's kind of an emphasis on you know all these experts and celebrities and rich christians and all this and quick you know oh just you know do this and you'll get rich you know that's how god wants you to live and all this stuff you know what all of scripture affirms the need for humility to be poor in spirit you remember in Judges in the Old Testament when Israel, or when God called, the Lord called Gideon to deliver Israel. And Gideon's reaction in verse 15 of Judges 6 says, Oh, my Lord, wherewith shall I save Israel? Behold, my family is poor, in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. <laughs> in other words, you know what? Pick somebody else, God. I'm the least person. You don't, you don't want this. In effect, He wanted to bow out, but God's reply was this, The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. The mightiest man is the one who recognizes that of himself there's nothing there. It's not the self-confident guy that struts in and, you know, has on the nice suit and, and all this stuff and, you know... His lifestyle just drips of success. Drives a Mercedes or the BMW or whatever your car is, and you know, flies here and there, and you know, has a nice house on the hill. All that—that's what we look to, and we go, "Wow, boy, that's just, <laughs> boy, to have that kind of success!" That yeah. God says that's nothing. That means nothing to me. Moses himself had that kind of attitude. He thought himself incapable of the task that God gave him. And you know what? By himself, he was. <laughs> The Lord used Moses because he recognized his own insufficiency. David said, Who am I, O Lord, and what is my house that Thou hast brought me thus far? 2 Samuel 7.18 And even in the New Testament, Peter was a very aggressive and confident man. Yet he even said to Jesus, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Luke 5.8 The Apostle Paul knew his own flesh Nothing dwelled good there. He named himself a persecutor, a blasphemer, the chief of all sinners. And he counted everything that he had done apart from Christ as rubbish. And this man had done a lot. He realized that God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. See, really, admitting your own weaknesses is the beginning of happiness in the Christian life. But you know what? That's probably the hardest thing that we'll ever do. It really is. To know true happiness, you must first be poor in spirit and acknowledge that you can't do anything on your own. There must be an emptying of yourself before you can be filled. And it's not only the attitude that you must have to become saved, that's what we're called to live. That's how we're called to live every day as Christians. You know, this isn't just a, uh, you know, to get through the pearly gates, you've got to act this way. No, this is a lifestyle that Jesus is calling us to. And you say, man, that's that's impossible to do that. Scripture says this, what's impossible with man is what? It's possible with God. See, Jesus, on the Sermon on the Mount, was affirming a lifestyle that promises eternal happiness. But you've got to understand, it can't be followed through your own resources. He's not saying just hunker down and do these things <laughs> and you'll be a better person. That's not what Jesus is saying. It's really illustrating a similar thing than even when God gave the law on Mount Sinai. Remember when He gave the law on Mount Sinai and all those laws? I mean, He had the Ten Commandments, but then He had a bunch of other laws as well. There were, some of them, there's no idolatry, there's no adultery, there's no stealing, there's no murdering, there's no bearing false witness... All those things, don't do those things. You stop and you think and you read the story, even while God was giving the law, what were they doing? They were down partying, having basically an orgy at the foot of the mountain. See, right from the beginning, Scripture shows that God's standards are not within the realm of human achievement. There's no way we could do this, humanly speaking. Some of the people of Israel knew they couldn't keep God's standards. And you know what? What did they do? They offered sacrifices to Him. They confessed their sins. And you know what? God mercifully forgave them. However, there were others who thought that they could keep God's law. And they would boast about their own self-righteousness. When the rabbis saw the law couldn't be kept, they added traditions to it to make it a little easier. You know, the law says this, but our tradition is this. A lot of the Talmudic law today, the Jewish system of interpretation and tradition that developed around God's law, is nothing more than really a diluted system of standards devised so that they could feel better about themselves. (laughs) And while they were trying to protect the law of God, in reality, they simply lowered its standards in an attempt to make it more attainable. You know, as Christians, we do that with the gospel. You know, the gospel is a hard message to hear. And so what do we do? We don't want to offend people. So then we change the elements of the gospel. You know, and it turns into this, well, Jesus wants you to be happy and, you know, God loves you and He loves everybody and, you know, just say this prayer and, you know, hey, you're in. Good. You're good to go, man. You know, that's ridiculous. That's not the gospel. That's a cheap kind of a... Uh, something that we came up with to, to represent the gospel so that people would say, oh, yeah, I, I want to do that. No, to accept the Gospel, you have to deny yourself. We don't want to hear that. No, no Deny stuff. Forget that. No, that's what the Word of God says. Our love for Him should be so much greater than our love for anything else, including our own family. That our love for our family should almost seem as if it's hate in comparison to our love for our Lord. He's not saying hate your family, but He's saying, you know what, if you were lining line them up Right up, I mean, your love for God should be way up here. That's what he's saying. They realized they couldn't keep the law. And you know what? The law wasn't given to be kept. <laughs> That's not why God gave the law. God gave us the law so that we could show, He could show us how inadequate we are. You want, you want a law? Fine, I'll give you a law. Here, here's my standard. And he just laid it out for them. Because he knew that for some of them it would drive them to their needs in desperation and realize, I can't do this. That's the heart God will speak to. Matthew 5.48, it says, Be perfect even as your Father who is in heaven is perfect. Matthew 5.20, he also says, Except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. See, they, they did have kind of a form of righteousness. They did some good things. But it still wasn't good enough. The scribes and the Pharisees kind of had substituted the commandments of God with the traditions of men. In the Sermon on the Mount, the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount is the same purpose that He gave the law. The Lord wanted people to see that they had to become poor in spirit and depend totally on Him. God's standards can't be presented to the unregenerate man as something to live by. You can't go home and tell your unsaved neighbor, you know, our pastor said, you know, you need to be humble. They don't have the power within themselves to do it. It's only by Christ we can do that. It's Christ that lives in us. That's why obedience to the law requires a new nature. We have to have our wicked heart transformed into a new heart. And it begins with becoming poor in spirit. Closing, what are the results of being poor in spirit? You notice there it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit for what? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He made a factual announcement here. He didn't say here, well, if you're good enough, then maybe one day you'll get into heaven. He didn't say, you know, if you're real religious, maybe one day you'll be in the kingdom of heaven. He said, if you're poor in spirit, you have the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's not future tense. And it's very emphatic in the Greek. The kingdom of heaven definitely belongs to those who are poor in spirit. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying it's so basic. Humility is so basic that if if, if you don't have humility, you're not a Christian. Can't be. Humility describes all who are Christians. I'm not saying we're humble all the time. But inside... We realize that we're spiritually bankrupt. And when he says here, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, Jesus was stating that reality in the present tense. Now, we're not going to fully realize all that. It's going to be future. The reign of Christ and the true blessedness we can experience right now. You don't have to wait till the millennium or some future time to, to actually live out these principles. That's what he's saying. In 1 Peter 2, 5, Revelation 1, 6, it calls us kingdom priests. We're subjects of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, 6 to 7 says that we've already been seated together in heavenly places. It's already done. We're already recipients of God's grace. There's nothing more that can happen. You can't get any more saved than you are when you're poor in spirit. When you come to God and you acknowledge your need of a Savior and you cry out to Him, God, you know, be merciful to me, a sinner. At that point, He saves you. At that point, He doesn't say, okay, well, we'll see if you can work on it. And maybe if you're good enough in the future, eventually you will make it to heaven. He doesn't say that. It says that we have our place seated together in heavenly places and we're the recipients of God's grace in Ephesians. It's something that's done in the past and it has ongoing ramifications. That's the idea. We have the grace of the kingdom now but you know what? We'll see the glory of it later. 1 John 3, 1 to 2. The result of being poor in the Spirit is that we possess the kingdom of God now. We don't have to work for it. We don't have to try to be better than what we are. We just need to trust in God's grace. What are the marks of somebody who's poor in the Spirit? I think first of all, you'll see a focus on God. You'll see people focus on God. A person who's poor in the spirit focuses on God and he reads His Word. Why? Because he's dependent on it. He has nowhere else to go. Also, there's a starvation of the flesh. You know, there's a lot of ministries today that try to really feed our pride. But, you know, that's not what it's about. It's very easy for you to accept compliments and accolades and You know, whatever you do in life, whether whether it's your company or whether it's your own personal, whatever it is, it's very, you know, it's easy to hear that, you know, I mean, you don't want to hear somebody come up to you and, you know, say, man, you're a wreck and just, you know, read you the riot act, you know, but when someone pats you on the back and hey, yeah, that boy, you know, good sermon, yeah, yeah, you know, it feeds our flesh. The worst thing we could do is possibly is believe what they're saying and walk away going, yeah, you know, I, I'm doing pretty good. That's right. Yeah, God needs me. Don't ever go there. God doesn't need one of us to accomplish His work. Sometimes it's hard because people will come up and confront you about something. And, you know, you offended him in some way and sometimes I'm just so brain dead, I guess I don't even realize I'm offending somebody. And share it with me. And, you know, at first, inside, you're getting all defensive, you know, because they're saying, well, you said this, and, and immediately you're thinking, that's not what I meant. You know, it's the furthest thing. Why would I say that if that's what I, you know, I wouldn't say it, you know, in that way or whatever. And so they, there's a misinterpretation, but that's fine. But you start getting defensive and you're, you, know, you start digging your heels in. And so many times I've learned to just kind of hear what the person is saying. And if they're saying, you know what, you offended me, then I offended them. It doesn't matter whether I meant to or not. And a lot of times when that happens, it just goes back and it shows me how inadequate am I. <laughs> you know, I mean, how, how how you know, God doesn't look down on us and say, oh, gee, I, I need that person. And sometimes, you know, it's good to he- hear feedback that's not so good because it kind of keeps us in the right frame of mind. And then the third thing, there are prayerful attitude toward God. If you want to be poor in spirit, ask for God's help. That's what the beggar did. God, be merciful to me, a tax collector. Be merciful to me, a sinner. He went home justified. Thomas Watson, in his little book, The Beatitudes, gave seven principles. I'm just going to read these. In determining whether or not you are poor in the Spirit. First of all, you will be weaned from self. Psalm 131 says, Like a child that is weaned from his mother, my soul is even like a weaned child. A person who's poor in spirit is being weaned from his self-centeredness. Because that's what we are. We're all, we're all about ourselves. All of us are. Secondly, you will focus on Christ. You won't focus on yourself. That's what 2 Corinthians 3.18 and, and, and other places. Um, third thing, you'll never complain. Whoa, what do you mean? You'll never complain. If you're poor in spirit, you'll never complain about your circumstances because you know what? You'll know you don't deserve anything anyway. When's the last time you complained about your job? Realize, you know what? Maybe you've got to take that job away and you won't complain anymore. You can go down and stand in the unemployment line. See, how you like that. Bet you won't complain about your next job. See, well, you don't complain if you realize you don't deserve anything anyway. Everything's gravy in life. It's by the hand of God. It's His grace. You'll see good in others. A person who's poor in spirit will see the excellencies in others and and recognize their own weaknesses. You'll spend time in prayer because you're always begging. You're always saying, Conor, I can't do this. Please, God, help. You're not strutting up, you know, to, to do whatever God calls you to do in your own self. You're realizing, God, I can't do this. You will take Christ on His terms Or what will you have me to do? Thomas Watson said this, A castle that has long been besieged is ready to be taken and ready to be taken will deliver up on any terms to save their lives. He whose heart has been a garrison for the devil and has held out long enough in opposition against Christ, when once God has brought him to poverty of spirit, he sees himself damned without Christ, let God propound what articles he will. He will readily subscribe to them. Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? You'll praise and you'll thank God. When you're poor in spirit, you realize everything is a gift of God. The grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant in our hearts will just... You know, express that and we'll realize nothing as rock of ages says nothing in my hand i bring simply to the cross i claim i don't know where you're at this morning but jesus said in the sermon on the mount this is this is base one this is this is the very basic of any christian's life are you humble are you poor in spirit Do you realize that you have nothing in yourself that is pleasing to god and that your your sin is an offense to a holy God. And you need to cry out to Him for mercy and for grace. And that's a prayer that He'll He'll hear. Let's bow in a word of prayer and ask the worship team to come. We're going to sing a couple songs before we have our communion time. Father, we thank You for Your Word this morning. And Lord, we thank You that we are dependent on You. Not just physically, Lord, but spiritually even more so. Lord, Your Word says that all have sinned and fallen short of Your glory. There's not one that's good. No, not one. Lord, guard us as Christians to begin to think that somehow we're, we're, we're good spiritually before You. That because we come to church or because we put some money in the offering or because maybe we pray before our meals or read a scripture or, or help out a beggar on the corner, that somehow that, that we're earning favor with You. That should just be a a natural outflow of our Christian lives and nothing more. And it's only by the Spirit of God that we even do that. doesn't mean we don't do anything. Because when you're poor in spirit, when you've been broken on the inside, that leads to a servant attitude toward life. And God will lead you to do things. You'll see it working its way out into the activities of your life. You'll begin to realize that every time you gather together with believers such as this this morning, it's by the grace of God and that you should just welcome it and embrace it and be built up in your faith as a result of it. Not come with a critical spirit that's looking to point out everything that's done wrong. Father, we thank You for our salvation in Christ. We thank You that You've provided everything that we have and everything that we'll ever need. There's nothing more to add to it. We're complete in Christ. We're secure in Christ. We're saved by Christ. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here this morning who's yet to put their faith, their trust in the living Lord, I don't know what they're waiting for, but God, I pray that You would move their heart to do so. That You would bring them to that point of spiritual poverty in their own life. That they would realize there's no other way except through Christ. There's no other way except denying their own sufficiency in embracing Christ. Lord, we ask that You would do that work here this morning. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.